Boss Level is sponsored by Talented. You know how all the Hollywood celebrities have their own agents? Well, Talented is essentially based on the same idea. It's a new management agency for developers and members of software development teams. They help you score the job you want. I'd want to join Talented just so that if someone told me their company is hiring, I could say, yeah, call my agent. Or, or even better, yeah, just um, have your people call my people. Even if you're not currently looking for a job, it's still a good idea to join the network. Because as a member, you will gain access to their events, such as exclusive workshops on tech topics or exclusive visits to interesting companies. Membership is free. Go to talented.fi to sign up and get your personal agent. That's talented.fi. Welcome to the new fourth season of Boss Level Podcast. In the previous episode, I told you I was taking a break from podcasting since we were about to have a baby. Well, the baby is now here. And I'm happy to say that all is well. I asked the baby to say hi to all the podcast listeners. So here he is. The baby is now two months old and we've started settling into our new life. So this is a good time to get back to the podcast. New listeners have been piling in since the previous episode with General McChrystal, so thank you for all the shares and social media. I promise that I'll do my best to, pro- to provide interesting and useful content in the future too. Luckily, I'm feeling pretty confident about the episodes I have in store for you during this upcoming season. My first guest for this season is James Hewitt. James is the Head of Science and Innovation at Hintza Performance. He's a sports scientist and performance coach searching for fresh perspectives and new approaches to enhance the performance of people, products, and projects. We talk about the circle of better life, which is a model that covers all the important aspects of well-being. We talk about the science behind the methods they use and the new and interesting research in measuring cognitive load and knowledge work. Towards the end, you'll hear some pretty simple tips for improving your brain's performance. If you happen to be listening to this while jogging or taking a walk, you're going to feel extra good about yourself by the end of this episode. Hope you enjoy it. So Hintzer was founded by uh, Dr. Aki Hintzer uh, more than 20 years ago now. And uh, really the, the company grew out of Aki's passion for helping people improve their lives and their performance. And uh, that began um, actually back in Ethiopia, where he was uh, working, um, kind of uh, following the civil war there, um, and uh, and working in some hospitals, training doctors. Uh, he was actually a missionary doctor there, um, and uh, but he also witnessed some of the um, the training and the performance of the great endurance athletes that they've got there, particularly the, the runners. And so he started to formulate a kind of a, a system uh, by observing them and trying some ideas uh, about how you can. Uh, build performance on a foundation of well-being. And so that continued um, in, in sport. Um, Aki is quite famous working in Formula One. He started to gather some of the experts around him. Uh, he then started to be approached by business people. And he grew the business out of that, really. So um, today, um, we're relatively a larger company uh, compared with it. It's not a one-man band anymore. 
yeah. uh, and so um, uh, today we work across both sport and business and our mission is, is still the same uh, it's to enable people to improve their lives and their performance to have a better life and better performance and our mission is to do that through the coaching and the digital services that we offer um, and and that's all built on this, this scientific evidence base part of my role is to, is to help build that and today we work uh, across um, uh, many sports, including Formula One. Uh, we still work extensively there, but also with various different businesses as well. I think that's a really interesting combination that you are actually like you train athletes and you train business people. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah, awesome. It's a good mix. High performers in all kinds of environments and really just people who want to uh, have a better life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so let's briefly talk about the science behind the methods. So how, mm. how did they, uh, like the methods that you use, where, where did they come from and what's the science behind them? Yeah, so I mean, in science, scientific evidence base is an interesting thing because um, I think there's a there's a big difference between uh, what I call science and scienceiness. There's a lot of scienceiness <laughs> out there in the world at the moment, and yeah. so um, you know it's great. And, and I fall victim to it sometimes. I'll say, um, so there's a study, there's and it seems study. like you know there's a study from the Institute of Studies, and if you've studied it, then you know it must be true, right? <laughs> um, and um, and so there's a and there's a temptation as well, um, I think, in this space that we're in, which is around kind of uh, you know well-being and health and performance that we want to help people, and so we're at risk of this confirmation bias because if sure. we see a piece of evidence, you know, we see a published paper in a journal, um, and the findings suggest that it could improve someone's life, there's a temptation to leap on that um, and and want to use it to to help people, but the reality is is that there's a hierarchy of evidence. And, um, and so, you know, there's uh, kind of at the top of the tree, we say, you know, there's randomized control trials, um, kind of uh, there's uh, below that, there's what I call signals, which where there's a kind of, um, uh, you know, it's a, there's a plausible mechanism um, and there's some evidence to suggest that, that an intervention works perhaps. Um, and then at the bottom of the tree, there's a kind of a reasonable hypothesis. Um, and, and so for me and kind of the team that I work with, the challenge is to, to kind of fit that uh, evidence. Uh, uh, all our methods are built on, kind of a um, scientific evidence base that's been published in respected journals. But to kind of really pass that out and, and say which of those, uh, those journals and those papers that we're looking at that we're building uh, our services on um, represents um, the kind of the highest form of evidence that you know, we'd be happy to prescribe, what represents kind of um, a kind of plausible mechanism that we're, we're confident uh, that works, and what is, um, is a reasonable hypothesis but maybe requires a bit more work before we kind of let it out into the wild. And, um, and so um, we build it on a strong foundation, but um, I'm very keen that we build it on a, a scientific evidence base, not a sciencey evidence base. And <laughs> sure. uh, yeah, there's a big difference between the two. That's really interesting. So uh, when, when Hints of Performance innovates, uh, what do you specifically do? How do you do your innovation work? Innovation is rarely an event. It's rarely a singular event. Um, most of the time it's a journey. And uh, it's a journey towards finding things that are new and useful. Um, and also, I think often we can fixate on this idea of innovation being kind of the result of uh, an individual's intuitive leap. Um, but more often than not, innovation is actually a collaborative effort. It's kind of the pooling of cognitive resources um, towards an outcome. So, so innovation at Hintza is our kind of journey um, as a team uh, towards um, finding things that are new and useful for our clients which are going to help them improve their lives and improve their performance. And obviously that's built on a, a scientific evidence base. And that's where, you know, so I think the other thing about innovation that's interesting is that you know, more often than not, innovation is about combining old ideas in new ways. Um, it's actually very rare that, um, 
kind of something completely novel has uh, has been discovered. And um, you know, an example, I guess, is um, uh, earlier this year, I was thinking a lot about how we can quantify knowledge work. You know, so for example, um, I've worked a lot with athletes, and it's actually relatively easy to sure. measure physical work. Yeah. How do you quantify knowledge work? You know, it's it's kind of a black box and. So I was looking at various different methods to do this, and I came across this interesting method that had been used um, uh, recently in a simulated mission to Mars. It's called the Mars 500 mission. And they used this method called the CTL method, uh, cognitive task load method. And essentially, they used it to, um, to measure the tasks they did and to, to estimate the cognitive load. And they did that by looking at each task in the context of three dimensions. They looked at the complexity of the task. They looked at how often they had to switch during the task. And they looked at the time pressure that they were under. Because one of the things they were interested as well as quantifying cognitive load was also to see, was there an interaction as the mission progressed when people got stressed or people got tired or people got annoyed with each other? You can imagine these guys were kind of locked in a capsule somewhere in Russia, pretending that they're going to Mars. Um, you know, things get, I imagine they did get stressful <laughs> after, after a few days. Um, but my question was, you know, could I uh, combine this idea with some other approaches to maybe look at cognitive load in knowledge workers and think about um, the tasks that we engage in through the day and also at home as well. And so I started to do that and came up with this concept of cognitive gears, this idea that we can you know, spend time in low gear, medium gear, high gear. What are the implications of that? So I'd say that was an innovation, but really it was combining old ideas and new ways. And actually, I'm talking to you about this now relatively fluently, but that's because I, I shared this idea with my team and they helped me shape it and, uh, uh, and told me which bits were rubbish and which bits were too complicated and which bits needed to be elaborated on. So innovation is always a journey. It's a collaborative effort. And more often than not, it's old ideas in new ways. That's great. Uh, I, I still want to talk a little more about the, uh, the measuring, measuring uh, knowledge work and cognitive mm. load. So uh, as a result of, uh, of you working with this and, 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 uh, and kind of trying to figure this out, did you come to a conclusion of like, do you feel that we have a method now for uh, for measuring knowledge work and it's uh, like the effort, effort no. required? No, not, yeah, not, exactly. not comprehensively. Yeah, I mean, I think there's lots of challenges um, with measuring knowledge work. And uh, you know, this is really kind of probably going to be one of the interesting questions to explore for the next few years. I'm about to start a research project, which is going to involve us kind of um, thinking about how you can measure knowledge work. Uh, you know, I think one of the most promising um, opportunities is probably to use um, simulations. There's some interesting validated simulations out there that can assess um, knowledge work in the context of various cognitive um, uh, domains of cognitive function, which holds some promise. So I think one of the challenges is, is that when people have tried to measure kind of outcomes in knowledge work before, they've used proxy measures. Exactly, like, um, yeah, yeah. You know, um, maybe it's a proofreading task or they've used, they've tested kind of a basic... Um, Kind of uh, um, uh, kind of uh, cognitive capabilities, or they've used things like um, reaction time, or selective attention, or response inhibition, like Stroop tests, and you know that's kind of maybe relevant to like traders, for example, uh, to some knowledge workers. But you know, what we call the ecological validity of those measures—how much does it represent the real world? There's a lot of room for improvement there. Um, I'm quite interested in potentially using things like um, mobile electroencephalogram. So um, kind of you might have seen people wearing these kind of caps with electrodes on the heads measuring their brain activity. You know, these um, kind, of, uh, kind of arrays are getting cheaper. Um, you, know, you can get relatively cheap systems now that work without wires. That, um, you know, they're not kind of laboratory grade, but they can provide some quite meaningful insights about what's going on in, in someone's brain when they're engaged in a task. So 
I'm interested in looking at that, maybe looking at eye tracking as well. There's some interesting kind of mobile eye tracking systems out there. Um, and so this is an area where I'd say, again, we're looking at kind of um, reasonable hypotheses. Um, you know, I'm not ready to prescribe anything yet. Uh, there's a few things that we're doing, um, which maybe we can talk about. But um, that part of my role is to kind of think about these, these big questions and start to explore them and, uh, and see where we end up. Yeah. How are you hoping to uh, like uh, be able to use this stuff after, after the research? Mm. So ideally, what I'd like to do is to be able to um, have some useful interventions um, that could, uh, you know, for example, in, um, in physical activity, uh, when we're working with an endurance athlete, you know, the idea of um, training intensity distribution. So that's how you kind of um, spread various different training intensities over the course of a training program. It's quite well established. You know, we know that um, it's, uh, it's an important way to help people to improve their performance and reach their goals. And so, for example, if I was working with a world-class endurance athlete, you know, they know that they can't do high-intensity training every single day. Um, and, uh, and they know that they need periods of high-intensity, then they need periods of recovery. Uh, they need to build a base of, uh, of endurance by doing kind of relatively long, low-intensity work. Um, and so there's this, this understanding that training intensity needs to be distributed thoughtfully. Work needs to be measured and distributed thoughtfully. But in knowledge work... We, we don't really ever think about that. You know, we've kind of got this attitude, especially like in startup culture. It's like, you know, we're going to smash it every day, like every day. And um, we kind of think we can work at 100% all the time, but, but actually you can't. And if we're honest with ourselves, we can't. But there's not really much thought about how do you measure cognitive work in the same way that you can measure physical work and how, what is the optimum distribution of cognitive work? And so ideally, you know, I'd like to, I've got some ideas and we're kind of testing some of these ideas. I'd like to be able to help people to uh, think about the distribution of their cognitive work in a similar way that we think about the distribution of physical work so that they can really achieve the goals that they're hoping for so that they achieve truly optimal performance because kind of you know this 110% 24/7 is a myth unfortunately as much as I would like it not to be yeah i, I really love this stuff because I, i think a lot of people have come to realize this but i think there's i think there's some neuroscience uh, behind it And, and some research behind it, but I think a lot of people have also like from their own kind of empirical studies have figured out that like they want to kind of reserve mornings for for work where they mm -hmm. want to want where they focus more, and then afternoons for meetings and and so on. So people have come kind of realized that my energy levels are not the same throughout the day, and then mm -hmm. they've kind of started optimizing their day through their understanding of their energy levels. Yeah, and I think, I mean, the interesting thing is, you know, we, we work with a lot of businesses and yeah. um, one of the things I hear a lot is, um, you know, burnout, rates of burnout are increasing. Um, people's perceived level of stress is increasing. And, and one of my questions has been, you know, how much of this stress is real? How much is self-imposed? You know, some, some studies suggest that, um, you know, interruptions, for example, we know that when we get interrupted, we feel stressed, our perceived stress increases. But some studies suggest that 44% of interruptions are self-inflicted. But also, you know, one of the questions I have is, um, and it goes back to this cognitive load, you know, if I think about my life, you know, 15 years ago, when I was a full-time racing cyclist, you know, I used to work really hard and then I used to rest and I used to travel a lot. But when I traveled, it, although in some ways it was stressful, it was actually kind of quite relaxing because if I was waiting for a plane, I was sitting in the departure lounge, I'd maybe have a chat with somebody or I'd look out the window, you know, I'd sit on the plane, I'd look out the window at the clouds. And um, I was sitting on a plane a few, uh, uh, a couple of months ago and, and suddenly I thought to myself, when I travel, I don't ever speak to anybody anymore. 
Why is that? Why do I never speak to anyone when I sit on a plane or in the airport? And I realized it's because I and everyone else are completely fixated to our mobile devices. So there's a social component to that. You know, I don't interact with my fellow humans anymore, but I think there's a cognitive component as well because we used to work hard and then have these natural periods of rest and recovery. We know that attention follows a pattern. Attention um, is, we we make demands of our attention and then our attention is fatigued and and then it recovers. But we live in this state of constant partial attention. Now we never let our attention recover. We never really let our cognitive load drop. So when I'm sitting in an airport departure lounge now, Generally, I'm on my phone and maybe I'm doing some email, maybe I'm browsing, maybe I'm looking at social media, I'm switching tasks regularly. If you were to look at my pupils as I was um, kind of engaged in those tasks, you'd see that those people, my pupils would start to dilate as the cognitive load increased. The the interface feels very natural, but actually we're doing quite a lot of conscious processing while we're kind of engaged and using these devices. And uh, and one of the things we know about attention is that it actually recovers best when we look at and natural fascinations. That's what some evidence would suggest. Maybe you look at clouds in the sky, you look at leaves on the trees. But but I don't do that anymore. Kind of I think I'm having a rest when I'm kind of getting these continuous dopamine hits by kind of engaging whatever social platform I'm on and the novelty that's inherent in that. Um, and so I kind of think we don't really think about how we distribute cognitive load. We don't take the rests that we used to. And one of the very practical things that we do is to is to suggest that when people get a moment, instead of pulling the phone out, you know, they do just take a moment to look out the window or maybe talk to another human being, which is actually quite rare these days, especially face to face. I'm feeling a little guilty here because I noticed that, for example, if I leave the office, I have like a maybe 10, 15 minute commute mm-hmm. and I always listen to podcasts every, mm-hmm. every all the time. And pretty much like even if I leave the house to go out and take the trash, I put on my headphones mm-hmm. and listen to a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so there's like it, when I think about like when does my cognitive load decrease it's uh, I'm I'm pretty much doing something all the time <laughs> it's so interesting isn't it because <clears throat> I um I can relate to that and um one of the things that I uh, I realized was that um I'm really scared of being bored I'm frightened of the silence in my own head I don't understand people who get bored because I'm like I have like always millions of things that I, I would want to do. I'd re- want to read that book or I want to listen to that podcast or that audio book and mm. so on. And I don't kind of, how do you get bored? How does that happen? Yeah, but I think <laughs> the, the challenge is that, because um, I'm on a journey with this as well and I'm trying to practice what I preach, but I still struggle with it sometimes. You know, There's so much interesting stuff in the world, isn't there, out there to uh, to absorb and to think about. And, um, and I mean, they did an interesting study a couple of years ago and they, um, uh, they found that, you know, why do people use their smartphones? That was a question they explored. Um, and there were two studies done, actually, one by IDC and another by Nielsen in 2014 that you'll be able to find online. And the studies found that um, you know we use our devices because sometimes we're bored, we're alone, we're looking for a sense of connectedness, for excitedness, because we're curious. And I think you know, one of the challenges is, is that you know, humans have got an innate novelty bias. Um, you know, we're rewarded for finding new information. Now, I, that is my job, you know, finding new information. It's great. It's like at the heart of innovation. Um, but um, you know, for most of human history, that was incredibly adaptive. You know, we lived in these village societies and I might look at the mountain next to my village and I would wonder what was on the other side of that mountain. I'd actually anticipate the reward um, that, uh, of finding something new on the other side. And, and that kind of um, desire for novelty has uh, been very adaptive and it's helped humans to kind of populate most of the planet. But the challenge today is that you know we've got access to this fire hose of novelty right in our pockets, um, you know, and we'll we'll get those dopamine hits instantly. 
But also that kind of reward is actually enhanced by uncertainty. Um, so, you know, when we're using these devices, often we're actually activating some of the same circuits which are associated with gambling. Um, and because it's the uncertainty of reward. You know, gambling is so successful um, as a business because sometimes you win and sometimes you lose. And actually we enjoy it more because sometimes we win and sometimes we lose. And you think about email. Why is email so addictive? Well, how often do you open your inbox and find something really, really good? Not, <laughs> yeah, not, not, not that not. often. Yeah. But because sometimes it's good, yeah, yeah. sometimes it's bad, it reinforces that addictive sure. cycle. Um, and so we get hooked into this kind of always-on culture. But the challenge that, um, that I'm, I give myself is you know, to, re, to embrace that gift of boredom again. Because um, actually, um, there's some interesting evidence emerging to, uh, around this, what you call the default mode network, which is um, some evidence would suggest that the default mode network is a distinct um, kind of network of interconnected brain regions that seems to activate when we're in a state of wakeful rest. So we're, we're awake, but we're task negative. And some evidence even suggests that there's correlations between the amount of gray matter associated with the default mode network and creativity. Other evidence suggests that the, the activation of the default mode network, time spent in default mode, um, is actually associated uh, not only with creativity, but also even with feeling um, kind of uh, to having ethical considerations, feeling social emotions, understanding social emotions, and with the consolidation of learning, um, and so, you know, there's all kinds of interesting kind of um, possibilities um, that suggest that the default mode network, time in default mode, time in a task negative state is really important for actually many of the things that are going to be fundamental to the future of knowledge work, things like creativity, things like collaboration. Um, and, and so, you know, I, my fear is that, you know, often, you know, the people who most need to spend time in default mode, knowledge workers, um, in terms of the, the benefits that this can offer, are the people who are most likely to be distracted out of it. And if we look at the great thinkers through human history, you know, there seems to be this tradition of periods of intense focus and productivity, followed by periods being relatively task negative. You know, Einstein holding his stone and you know, all these people who seem to kind of really produce and then maybe go for a walk. And actually, you know, um, I'm going down a path now um, and uh, I'm, I'm on one now. So I'm just going to carry on for a minute. But if we look at physical activity and we look at the best, the world's best endurance athletes, um, they seem to um, follow a training intensity distribution that's polarized. You look at cross-country skiers, for example, um, a guy called Professor Stephen Saylor has done a lot of research in this. And they've got this polarized training in, uh, distribution. It seems that they spend an awful lot of their time in what we call low gear physically. Um, then they spend, relative to other people, quite a lot of time in high gear. Not that much, but some real focus time in high gear. But they don't spend much time in middle gear, kind of around threshold. Um, and, and in terms of the distribution of cognitive work, I wonder whether the optimal distribution of cognitive work is similar. That actually we need to start spending increasing amounts of time in low gear, um, resting, recovering, maybe in a task-negative state where these kind of ideas kind of form, um, maybe subconsciously. Um, where we consolidate some of our learning, where we're creative um, uh, without really thinking about it. And then we spend these increasing amounts of time in, with real focused attention, where maybe for 90 minutes we try and produce. You know, we're not switching between our smartphone and our email and, uh, and all these other things. And actually, we try and minimize time in middle gear. I don't think we can eliminate it. For me, middle gear cognitively is characterized by switching and, uh, in particular, switching tasks. Some of that is inevitable. 
But actually, maybe we should think about polarizing our cognitive work as knowledge workers. And we're starting to experiment with that a bit. And you know, we're getting some interesting results. Um, yeah, let's talk a, talk a little about the, uh, the circle of better life, which, uh, which the Hints of Performance is based on. You know, the, uh, the circle of better life is, um, is quite simple. And, um, you know, there's not any elements there that are kind of particularly kind of uh, radical. Um, sure. You think, can think about that circle as six elements in the outside. And, yeah. um, and those are general health, physical activity, biomechanics, mental energy, sleep and recovery, and nutrition. And, uh, and then in the center of the circle, you've got what we call core. And that represents kind of your inner world. Uh, and often we'll talk about core as your sense of identity, your sense of purpose, um, you know, uh, living beyond yourself and, uh, and control. So your ability to kind of make decisions in line with that identity and purpose uh, in, the, in the broader system that we're part of. And I think, you know, the, so one of the ways that we use that circle of better life is to describe how, um, you know, you can, you can suggest that someone changes the way they eat, um, but actually telling someone what they need to eat isn't really the tricky part, to be perfectly honest. Um, the tricky part is actually getting people to, to do that sustainably. And, uh, and often that will only happen if people can discover a real deeper sense of motivation you know, that fits in with how they see themselves, who they want to be, the purpose that they feel they're living for. And then also giving them some practical tools so that they can integrate it with their life. And there's some interesting kind of uh, evidence around that as well, um, you know, around kind of that, that if you, um, in terms of kind of well-being, people, we talk about well-being quite a lot and, um, uh, and resilience. You know, often we, um, we look at kind of the top performers and we say, well, they must be doing everything perfectly um, in those outer elements. But it actually seems that um, you know, one of the most important things that you can do is to, is to build and look after your core. Now, you know, some of the evidence that we draw from is from the field of positive psychology, for example. And um, uh, Martin, Marty Seligman, uh, quite a famous researcher in that field, um, did some research among um, uh, the US Army as part of something called the Master Resilience Training Program. And one of the things he investigated was um, you know, what are the characteristics of people who... Um, uh, actually get stronger in the face of setbacks rather than um, you know, maybe experience disorders, like post-traumatic stress disorder, for example. And one of the things that he found was that you know, the people who seem to experience this post-traumatic growth are the people who actually don't just bounce back, but actually get stronger in the face of experiencing these, uh, these setbacks, are people who are kind of investing in, in their inner world, in um, kind of uh, their, um, you know, their, their, their experiencing Kind of positive emotions they're engaged um you know they and and it's really interesting because you know i think um it's very easy to kind of dismiss or try and ignore kind of your your inner world because um it feels like a black box it's a bit subjective and particularly for someone um who likes science it can feel quite sciencey um but um but it's fundamental and i think you know if um if you look at kind of uh, high performers you know, the, the real differentiator for high performers in sport and business often is what's going on kind of in their heads and, um, and actually kind of, you know, the good behaviors and the good habits, you know, the physical activity and uh, looking after their sleep and recovery are often, often the expression of that. Now, that's not always the case. There's always exceptions. And, and sometimes the challenge is um, how do you separate the causation from the correlation? Um, and so, you know, we want to look at this kind of critically from both angles. But um, but personally, you know, I think there's, there's some good evidence to suggest that it's our core, it's what's going on inside that's really driving us and can, uh, can pull us down, but also build us up to, to the highest levels. 
So how do you uh, specifically when you when you start working with a new uh, new uh, athlete or business executive? How do you start working on the core? What, what kind of questions do you ask, or what, what's kind of kind of the process? How do you start thinking about that whole thing? Yeah, so I mean, our coaches and um, our performance coaches have got kind of uh, are often sports scientists. Um, you know, we'll give them additional training on uh, uh, on the back of that. So I think it's important to kind of uh, say that you know we're our coaches. Some of them are psychologists, but they're not all psychologists. So some of it is just very um, simple coaching. And asking some good questions, um, you know, we, they're not in the business of diagnosing. Um, and and sometimes those those simple questions that they ask will just be kind of, um, do you know who you are? Do you know what you want? And are you in control of your life? And uh, and it can be as simple as that, and just start a conversation around it, and and actually encourage people to take a moment uh, to take a step back and ask themselves some of these questions, because often we haven't. We haven't had the time. We've been too distracted on our smartphones, um, and uh, and so we like to to start simply and and see where the conversation goes around those three questions. Okay, great. And and I think a lot of the uh, aspects are like in the in the circle of better life are fairly self explanatory. But but there's a couple of aspects I'd like to know more about. So um, so for example, biomechanics. What, what does that even mean? Biomechanics. When we talk about biomechanics, we're referring to our musculoskeletal system, so our muscles and our bones. And we're thinking about kind of how we move, thinking about stability, about flexibility, about movement control. And you know, one of the reasons biomechanics is a really important element, um, and it's called out specifically in that circle, relates to one of the points that I made earlier. That um, often, especially as knowledge workers, we forget that we've got a physical body. Um, but also, um, there's some significant biomechanical challenges, musculoskeletal challenges for many of the athletes that we work with as well. And if you take Formula One um, uh, as a specific example, you know, we see those guys kind of driving their cars um, you know, for, for a couple of hours. Um, but the, the reality is that the majority of their lives are spent sitting down. You know, it's Formula One is the fastest sitting down sport in the world in many ways. Um, uh, and, um, you know, maybe that's why uh, Brits are so good at it. We seem to be really good at sitting down sports. Um, but they, um, uh, the drivers spend a lot of time on planes. They spend a lot of time sitting with their engineers in the, in, in the trucks or, yeah, um, you know, in the, um, in the paddock. They, um, they spend a lot of time sitting in, in meetings and, and in, in press conferences. And so actually quite a lot of the work our performance coaches do is to... Um, improve the kind of the margin um, that those drivers have so that they're able to tolerate these long periods of sitting without increasing injury risk too much um, and um, uh, and also to offset some of those effects um, and uh, and so to you know, do various different routines when they get off the plane for example to kind of reset their body and um, but then those same techniques often we apply to knowledge workers as well um, you know the executive who uh, uh, has been on a long haul flight, and you know when she arrives at a destination, she's got to perform straight away, and um, and she's doing that week after week. And you know what can she do to offset some of those effects of uh, um, uh, of sitting for long periods and and the influence on her musculoskeletal system? So um, yeah, it's really important and and often overlooked. And and when you consider that kind of um, you know, back issues are one of the leading causes of absenteeism in Europe, um, you know it's not just. This doesn't just have a personal impact. There's a significant economic and commercial impact as well. Oh, sure. So uh, how about mental energy? What are the kinds of things that I should be taking into consideration in regards to balancing my mental energy? Mm. So well, when we talk about mental energy, we, we're describing that the energy that you have 
to manage your life and your environment. And, um, and so when we talk about mental energy, we're encouraging people to think, um, uh, to be more conscious um, or more mindful of um, how they're distributing their time and their energy through the day. And so, you know, some of the practices that we suggest um, we've already talked about uh, today. So, you know, for example, 79% of people check their smartphone within 15 minutes of waking up in the morning. On average, some studies would suggest that we check our smartphone once every six minutes while we're awake, 150 minutes, um, uh, 150 times a day. Um, Other studies suggest that we've got our smartphones with us for 22 hours a day, um, most of us. And so think about how that is taxing your time and your energy. And one of the really simple things that we do um, is to suggest that people maybe don't put their phone in their bedroom and use an old school alarm clock. Loads of people are talking about that. It's not rocket science. But, um, but actually, if you've got a coach who's reminding you about that, or maybe you've got an app where you're tracking that behavior and, uh, and being rewarded for, for doing that, um, if you start to do that, it can have a profound effect on your mental energy if you do it consistently. And we also look at things like work habits and how you distribute work through the day. And, um, you know, uh, like um, a classic one is, um, do you like to-do lists? I love to-do lists. I notice you've got Evernote there. Um, So I am kind of like a a to-do list fanatic and I have been for a while. But the problem with my to-do lists is is that they become enormous. And actually, they can actually become more of a burden than a help. Um, And so one of the things that we encourage people to do, and I try and do myself, is actually move items from to-do lists into um, into a calendar and actually schedule them. And that very simple practice can also have quite a profound effect. It may even kind of free up some working memory because you know we're not um, having to attend uh, to that piece of information anymore. We know that it will be attended to in the future. There's a, there's a time for it. So moving it from, from to-do list to, to calendar is another simple way to, to manage your, your mental energy, the time, the energy that you have to manage your life and environment. So lots of Think about mental energy like tactics, really. Um, you, uh, some strategy, but mainly tactics. This podcast covers systems thinking in many of its episodes. And I've, I've always found the human body to be a great example of a system. And thinking about the human body as a system, I've always considered physical activity to be one of the biggest leverage points. So basically, what I'm thinking is that exercise will help you sleep better, eat better. Uh, it increases your general health and mental energies and so on. So any thoughts on that? I agree. Yeah, <laughs> That's very I mean, it's, it's really cool. So, so I'm really fascinated with the brain at the moment uh, and the mind and um, you know, the, the function uh, of the brain. And, um, and so um, a while ago, some people might have heard that um, people have been exper- experimenting with um, uh, transcranial direct current stimulation. Um, so um, kind of, uh, um, they, um, <clears throat> they're kind of trying to stimulate the brain with these kind of, uh, this quite complex apparatus um, kind of uh, putting uh, currents through the brain and uh, and and actually um, improving certain aspects of cognition, and um, and so um, they did a study recently and they said, well, you know, would a moderate period like half an hour of cycling have um, a similar effect, a better effect, a worse effect than than this quite kind of uh, sophisticated kind of brain um, uh, uh, stimulation method? And they actually found that um, you know, thirty minutes of moderate cycling improved long term memory. Um, much more significantly than this very sophisticated um, method, um, kind of um, uh, uh, um, stimulation method. So, you know, it's interesting that physical activity seems to unlock so many positive changes in um, in the body and the mind, and um, uh, that have a real impact in the world um, and in how we interact with the world. 
So, you know, this physical activity can improve brain function. You know, actually, physical activity in terms of, we talk about hierarchy of evidence, um, the strongest evidence for an intervention to improve um, kind of our uh, cognitive control um, comes from uh, being more physically active, um, you know, improving our physical fitness. Um, much more effective yeah. than any of these kind of, you know, brain training apps and, and all these kind of things, which, which may, they hold promise. They might be, they, they might be useful. But actually, the best thing you can do to upgrade your brain um, is to increase your physical fitness. Uh, and as you said, you know, we know that um, you know, physical fitness has all kinds of long-term health benefits in terms of reducing um, kind of uh, all-cause mortality, you know, the risk of dying from anything, uh, reducing kind of risk of uh, type 2 diabetes, uh, helping with weight control. Um, so it really is a keystone element. Um, it, improve, it reduces uh, anxiety. It can improve self-esteem. Um, there's all kinds of very good evidence to show the benefits of physical activity. And um, I think the challenge is, is that we, when we think about the long-term benefits of physical activity, improving health span, so kind of you know, delaying the uh, ill effects of old age uh, for as long as possible and compressing our morbidity, unfortunately, we apply a huge temporal discount to that. So you know, if someone says, um, you know, James, like, uh, you exercise now, you're going to live a bit longer and you're going to live healthier – Unfortunately, because of the way my little brain is uh, is built, um, like I don't really care that much about my long term future self. I only really care about myself now, and that's just how humans are. And so, what we need is these kind of um, Trojan horses to um, to encourage us to be physically active now. Now, fortunately, once you get over that initial hurdle, you know, we get a lot. Of, we get some great kind of endorphins. It feels good. Um, and and actually, one of the things I'm interested in is you know, these messages such as physical activity can upgrade your brain. And um, are these these little rewards kind of the things that may help some people um, that will trigger, maybe trigger some people to be more physical active today because it offers a kind of quick win, a quick fix, which we humans love. Okay, so we were very much in agreement about the, the importance of, of physical activity. So if you had to cut your physical activity to one single thing for the rest of your life, what would that single thing be? Good question. I think um, if I was going to be like scientific about it um, and I wanted to do the best thing for my health, it would probably be some kind of circuit training which combined resistance exercise with cardiovas uh, cardiovascular exercise because those two modalities we know are associated with all kinds of really, really positive outcomes. Um, you know, Often we forget about resistance exercise, but there's really interesting evidence about the association between muscle mass and muscle strength and longevity even suggestions that kind of, um, you know, muscle has an association with kind of almost having a neuroprotective effect as we age even. Um, and then obviously we know that there's lots of positive benefits of increasing our cardiovascular fitness. So some kind of um, kind of combination of those in a circuit. But um, if it was a, from my, my heart and uh, I, I'd want to just ride my bike because <laughs> I just love being out in the mountains and climbing and descending and but yeah. that probably wouldn't be very good for my bone density, but uh, I'd have fun until I shattered into a million pieces. <laughs> if we we were trying to like summarize this, this all, so what can we learn from high performers in sport and business that we can all apply? I mean, thinking about high performers in, um, in sport and business, I think they are aware of how they distribute their effort. They're conscious of it. And um, they recognize that uh, there's times when we need to work hard, there's times when we need to rest, and they try and optimize those, um, uh, uh, those things. So that's one of the learnings, I think, is to be more conscious about how we distribute our effort, and more, it's particularly more intentional about how we rest. But I think, for me, the kind of the number one learning 
from high performers is, is that they are driven by a deeper sense of purpose. And that purpose is really in line with their identity, how they see themselves. And, and with that, they're capable of some incredible things. And, uh, and so if there was one thing that we could take away from those high performers, it would be to spend some time really thinking about who we are, about what we're really living for, being more aware of what's going on in us, what we're feeling, what we're thinking, uh, and, and spending some time reflecting on the impact that we want to make in the world beyond ourselves. And, uh, and from that, it's a great source of energy, a source of passion, um, and uh, where we can start to kind of make the changes, you know, these optimizations, maybe even localizing in some areas that, that can help us perform at a top level. But, but really, it needs to be driven, like these high performers, from, from something much deeper. Thank you for listening. We've now officially kicked off the new season. Share this episode with the people you think would like to listen to it. If you want to learn more about James or his work at Hints of Performance, check out the links in the show notes. If you have any feedback or want to share your thoughts with me, you can reach me on Twitter at Sami Honkonen or via email Sami at bosslevelpodcast.com. The next episode will be out in two weeks. But before we go, a word from a sponsor. This episode of Boss Level was brought to you by the kind people from Columbia Road. Their consultancy helping clients increase revenue and get more customers. They help companies like Marimekko make more money. That's a simple way of saying that they transformed the fashion company's digital sales into agile, results-driven operations. An old friend of mine, Matti Parviainen, has been a part of the company since they set up shop a year ago. Hi, Matti. Good morning, Sami. I just wanted to have a quick chat with you. So uh, what are you guys all about? Okay, I'll be quick. We're doing our best to transform how digital commerce works. Too often people see it as an IT project where you build a web shop and then it's done. It's much more complicated than that. Like all good sales work, it's continuous and always changing. We design and develop the sales channels with this in mind. Okay, that sounds about right. Can I talk some more? (laughs) Sure. Thanks. It's been my dream to be a podcast sponsor. (laughs) So um, to get great results in digital commerce, we need to work in a highly unpredictable and complex environment. We want to be super lean, but also adapt to the more standardized practices that companies have built for their business. I love doing this together with our clients. If you think Matti's job sounds interesting, you should go to columbiaroad.com slash boss level. They've managed to poach some of the best talent in the area, but are still one consultant short. Whether you're a designer, developer, or a business expert, Columbia Road is interested in the listeners of Boss Level. You're following the good stuff, and they would like to meet you. So go on, check out columbiaroad.com slash bosslevel, or visit their brick-and-mortar shop on Erikengatu in downtown Helsinki. Let's talk.